Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. We are, we're going to go on a journey today. We're not going to go to Arizona for the game. We're going to go on a journey today. So we are in week six of this series we've been in now for a while called Dear Church, where we're looking at the letters of Paul to churches in the New Testament. And again, like I said, we're going to go on a journey today as we are in the book of Philippians. So if you have a Bible with you or have it on your phone or app, you can go to Philippians chapter 1. We're just going to read one verse to start today, and that's going to launch us onto a journey throughout the entire Bible. I know we're doing that this year, but we're going to do it all today too, guys. We're going to go from beginning really to nearly end, even to current day, um, as we see what Paul writes to the Philippian church. So we've sort of got a sneak peek a few weeks ago, actually the first week of the series, as to how the Philippian church got started. So the first week of our series, Dear Church, we were in the book of Acts, and we looked at Acts chapter 16, and we looked at three people that Paul met in the city of Philippi. There was no Christian church there um, at all uh, that we know of, and so Paul actually starts this church that we, we kind of already read that story, where he met, remember Lydia down by the river in a little Bible study? She gives her faith to Christ, puts her faith in him. And then they have they meet this little demon-possessed girl who is foretelling the future. And Paul um, casts the spirit out of her, and the gospel was powerful to her. But because of that event, Paul and his companion Silas are then arrested and put in prison. And while they're there, an earthquake shakes the foundation of the jail. All of the chains come off every prisoner. All of the doors of every cell open. And yet, Paul has them wait and stay, and then the third person they meet is the jailer in charge of the jail. So obviously, he's going to be kind of freaking out when all of the prisoners are now freed all of a sudden from this earthquake. So he's going to take his own life, but Paul stops him and tells him, don't, because we're all still here. And that moment for the jailer impacted him so much that he said, his response wasn't, why are you doing this? He already knew why. He already knew that really the gospel had been preached to him in that moment because his response in that moment of chaos to Paul was, what must I do to be saved? So that was the beginning of the Philippian church. Now, years later, Paul then writes a letter uh, to the church, and it's a very encouraging letter. Some letters that he writes, like especially the Corinthian letters, are not so nice. He's correcting a lot of bad behavior. Even last week with Galatians, he's kind of not really rough on the people, kind of, but more so on the leadership who are really spouting false teaching. But this one is very encouraging. Uh, they have been very supportive of Paul and his ministry, uh, both in prayer and, both and also financially. And so he's writing to encourage them. And so here's where we're going to start off today. We're going to look at this one verse from the first chapter of Philippians, which is going to be our theme for a journey that we're going to go on today. So this is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, pretty famous uh, verse here. Paul writes, And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, 
will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So from this verse, we will see a theme that will journey us through the entire scripture today for a few minutes. There, it's the same theme that we'll see in Israel's history. It's the same process throughout their history. And it's also a process that I think we see in our lives, whether we realize it or not. So maybe you're, you're, we're all in different parts of our lives. We're all in different phases of our lives. We all have different things going on in our lives. And yet the same process that is throughout the scripture, that is throughout Israel's history, is also in our lives. So I think this will be hopefully encouraging for us today. This theme that we see is that wherever you are in your life, you can be encouraged that God is not finished. Wherever you find yourself in any situation where you are in life, good or bad or in between, as we'll see today, you can know that God is not finished. We'll see how, why that's so important here today. So there's really, as we'll, as we'll get going, we'll see there's sort of this five-step process that we're going to work through. Again, the whole theme of Scripture, it's not, again, it's not going to take us the whole year to get through today's message, but we are going to see this theme throughout. And it starts with the guy that we focused on last week. So last week we talked about Abraham quite a bit, the promise that God gave to him. And that's where this process here in Philippians actually starts. So we talked about the promise God gave to Abraham at the very beginning. Let's look at that really quickly as we get started. Genesis 12, verse 1. Here's how the first thing that God ever says to Abraham is this. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. This is what we talked about last week. Abram has really no idea, possibly, of this God that's now speaking to him and turning his life upside down, making a big ask of him, saying, hey, I need you to uproot everything that you are, everything that you know from everyone that you are around, and just go. That's not really much of a plan, is it? But that's the first part of this phase. It's, but Abraham finds himself in a planning phase. It's a very skeletal outline, planning phase. It's like big, bold letter headline, but nothing underneath. That's what he has to go on here. He had to rely on faith. He had to do a lot of hard work without seeing results, which on Red Sunday, this is why today is such a big deal for the Chiefs, because up until now, they've been in the planning stages all offseason, all preseason. So they're, they're still in the weight room, getting, get, keeping their bodies ready, they're still watching film from last year, the year before, trying to scout who they're going to be playing for this season. They're still having team meetings. They still had off-season workouts. They still had a lot of practices in really grueling heat, but they had no actual games that meant anything this whole time. It's all been the planning phase. Everything the team's been doing, drawing up plays, scheming game plans, scouting teams, trying to figure out who's going to make the roster. It's all been this kind of behind-the-scenes work that is really not a lot of fun. And they've had no outlet. I mean, practices only, you can ask Jackson, football practice is fun for a while, and then you get really tired and really sore, and it's not so fun day, day after day, but it's part of the planning phase. That's where the team's been. That's where Abraham found himself. All of the work, none of the results for a long time. And maybe you can relate to where Abraham was in his, all of his life. His entire life was just the planning phase. He saw very little result for what God had promised him. Maybe you find yourself there. Maybe you've got a dream or a goal or an ambition that God's given you, but you don't really have any of the details figured out. And that can be frustrating that can be very, uh, it can fill you with fear to think about, okay, I feel like God's leading me in this direction, and I know he's got a purpose behind it, but I don't have no idea 
what I'm doing. Maybe you feel completely lost, but you know there's something there, so in some ways you're filled with hope, but maybe you're a worst-case scenario kind of person, and so immediately you just go so negative. Okay, there's this cool idea I've got or this thing that I feel like God's leading me to do, but man, I don't know if I can do that. It's just going to fall apart. If I get too involved, I'm going to mess it up. You know, there's just all these things in the planning process that we can overthink things. But like Abraham, we have to sometimes go without knowing. It's going without knowing, which can be scary and uncertain. But, we, but, but the thing that we have to remember, Abraham just went. Now, we don't have all the details, so I'm sure there were moments of great fear. I'm sure there were moments where he second-guessed. Okay, was that voice God, or was it something else? Was it the ham sandwich I had last night, right? Uh, What's going on? Was it it a dream? Was it not even real? And so we have to go without knowing sometimes, and we have to just say, okay, God, I'm going to trust your plan. If we connect what this theme is back to the verse we pulled it from, Philippians 1, 6, it's his work, okay? He says, he that began a good work in you will complete it. So it's God's plan, it's God's work that he is working on, he is completing so really, maybe at this point in whatever you're facing in your life, all you can do is just go along for the ride and just kind of see what happens. Sometimes the planning phase means waiting it out, which again is frightening, can be so scary. But that's, if we're going to follow this example that we see here from the very beginning with Abraham, that planning stage, it's, we just can't abort the plan too quickly. Because if we're patient and wait, we will see God do something. So then this process then continues with Abraham's son and grandson and great-grandkids, okay? So it continues on kind of slowly but surely. So when you read about uh, Abraham's son Isaac and his son Jacob, there's not a lot that really happens. It's a big chunk of the book of Genesis, and it's just a bunch of family stuff. Like the guys are finding wives, and they're, you know, raising children, and there's family drama, and there's there's some interesting stuff. But it's like, okay, how is this, how is the plan going here? We've gone 10 chapters in Genesis, and like, Three generations later, I'm not seeing a lot of what God promised a hundred years ago. But so here, here's what we see. So uh, Isaac then, Abraham's son, he marries and has twin boys, and they cause a lot of problems. If you have siblings, you know what I'm talking about, okay? If you're a twin, you really know what I'm talking about. And so, or in this case, they didn't get along. Maybe you did, but unfortunately they didn't. And so then what we find here is then Jacob's just living his life, you know, he's married, has kids, and doing his thing, just kind of a normal thing. But if you go back to the promise of his grandfather, Abraham, I'm going to make a mighty nation of you. I'm going to bless all of the earth through you. And Jacob's like, I'm a dude that's estranged from my family, on the run from my brother, just living a normal life. He's not experiencing what the promise was. Yet, there are a couple of key times in Jacob's life, even on the run, in the mess that he's made, where God shows up. So let's read one of these encounters where God confirms his plan is not finished. So this is Genesis 32. We'll start at verse 24. So Jacob's on the run from Esau. He sent his family away, kind of waiting on this face to face. So it says this, this left Jacob all alone in the camp and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, here's the key. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. 
your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel, because you have fought with God and with men and have won. This is the second part of this phase. So we go from the planning phase now to the planting phase. Again, until this moment, kind of dull, kind of boring, just regular family, everyday life going on. But that's part of the planting phase. That's what, so what is being planned is now being planted. You think about if you have a plant and you put the seed in the dirt, there's not a lot that happens right away, is there? Right? You put the seed in the dirt, water it, sunlight, and then you just do lots of this. Right? And then you go get some more water and then more sunlight, and then you do a lot more of this. A great example of this is the bamboo plant. There's different variations of this, but at least one of them is very slow growing until it's not. So when you plant the seed, anywhere from three to five years, not a lot's going to happen with that plant. You may have a small sprout. You may have nothing, again, for three to five years. Then once that bamboo plant decides to go, it shoots up as much as three feet a day. So we've gone from nothing for months and months and months to three feet a day, three feet a day, three feet a day. So what we've just read here in uh, Genesis 32 is for Jacob, it's a bamboo moment in his life. He's had a lot of nothing going on, a lot of questioning going on, a lot of, are we sure that I'm really doing this thing that my granddad said I was going to do? Because I'm not seeing, and then all of a sudden he wrestles with God. In the middle of the night. He has this encounter, face-to-face encounter with God. It's a bamboo moment for him. And God confirms to him in this moment that he is not finished with his plan. There's still much more that needs to be done. And the key in this story that I want us to apply here in Genesis 32 is where Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Maybe you're in that planting phase in your life and you're doing a lot of watching. Is anything going to happen? Is God going to keep his promise? Is this thing going to fall through? Is it going to succeed? Lots of unknowns, lots of questions, and not a lot happening. A lot of time for our minds to play tricks on us. A lot of time for the doubts and fears to creep in. But what happens is, all of a sudden, God will show up when we least expect it. And so what we cannot do, we have to do what Jacob did and not let go. If we believe in the plan, even if we're in that boring planting process of whatever area of your life you may be in, whatever season of your life you might be in, lots of waiting around, don't uproot that plant just yet. Because when you, again, when you least expect it, God's going to come through and confirm he's not finished yet. Because maybe that thing that God gave you is years way on back. Years. And you've seen nothing from that. Maybe this idea you just had kind of sitting there, you know, and not do anything with it. Don't uproot that just yet. Don't let go and, and refuse to stop growing. Because while you're waiting, God wants to do something maybe in you. See, that's the thing. Sometimes we're waiting on God to do something for us, and he's waiting to do something in us first. I think a lot of times that's what that planning process looks like, the planting process looks like. We're looking out here for stuff to happen, and he's like, let's, let's grow. Let's mature. Let's get ready for what I'm going to do, because if I did it now, you wouldn't be ready for it. So don't resist. Don't uproot just yet, but don't let go until God gives what he's promised or what he's planned and planted in your life. So then this process continues uh, again. So Jacob 
that has lots of sons. Joseph, you know the story, he goes to Egypt through a, miracle, through a series of miracles, becomes second in command over all of Egypt. So a lot of the Hebrews, the people who will become the nation of Israel, are now living in Egypt. And they're growing, they're multiplying generation after generation. And what happens is the Pharaoh over Egypt is getting a little nervous. For whatever reason, he's getting a little concerned. There's too many of these Hebrews. They're overpopulating Egypt here, and so we've got to do something about it. And so famously, in Exodus chapter 1, a Pharaoh rises up who's just like, we're going to put an end to this, and he makes all of these Hebrews their slaves. And so let's, let's read this, seri- this section here and look at the next part of this plan, because even this part, even this part of the story is still part of God's plan. He's not finished. This is Exodus chapter 1, verse 11. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramesses as supply centers for the king. But check this out. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread... And the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. So now we get into the third part of the thir- third phase of this plan, and that is the, pre- the preparing phase. So Abraham's descendants grow and multiply. The plan's working. It's happening. Like, there's a million of us now. Whoa! And then, just like that, now there are a million slaves. So wait, that, that, that's not, that can't be part of the plan, God. That can't be what you're doing here, but that's what happened. There's 400 years of slavery for Abraham's descendants. 400 years of really silence on God's part. This is just happening. So it had to seem to the people like, God's work has now stopped. We can officially put a period at the end of this sentence. God's plan has stopped. God's plan has failed. What was planted is not going to work. God's abandoned his people. But again, look at verse 12 one more time. The more they were oppressed, the more they continued to grow and flourish. So in fact, what the Pharaoh thought was going to be the plan to stop this problem made the problem worse which is so cool and so awesome and so interesting, I think. It backfired on him because God's plan was not finished. What the people faced here was unjust and cruel, but even in the midst of those situations, God was preparing them for something beyond what they were currently in. And I wonder if maybe some of you were in a season of preparation. And sometimes this, this phase can be the, the worst of all, Because at least in the planning phase, there was hope, right? There was a goal, there was a vision, there was an idea, I was excited. Even in the planting phase, it was dull and boring, but I still had hopes that was going to come. But now I'm in the preparation phase, and it's just awful. And things have taken a turn for the worse. And it seems impossible, not just unlikely, but impossible. Again, we're growing and multiplying in Egypt, and now we're slaves. Like, how did that happen all of a sudden? Where Where did God go in this plan. And like the slaves in Egypt, it may seem like God is silent. Maybe he's just working quietly. Like he's not going to announce, hey, I'm on plan, I'm on part B of, you know, the second part of the plan. He's not always going to make it obvious what he's doing. He's just tinkering away, working things out. You know, it's like, hmm, let me step back and check this out for 400 years. Hmm, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm going to have to do something about that. You know, to, to time is nothing to God, so he can, do, he can do that kind of thing, okay? 
but maybe you're in this phase, and here's the thing. This preparation phase will either make you or break you. So what I mean by that is, when we're in this preparation phase and things are falling apart, the plan is not working, what we thought was planted has been eaten away by bugs and pests, right? And we're like, okay, this is not how this is supposed to go. We can go one of two ways. Either our hearts can harden toward God in this plan, or we can allow God to strengthen our hearts during the time of preparation. So those are, the op- those are really the only two ways this is going to go. This, this is a hard phase, a hard season to be in. So we have to either allow God to work on us or our hearts are going to be hardened, and then the, the plan will not then work as it should. Paul, who wrote this letter of Philippians, had his own time of preparation. I don't know if you know this or not. He writes about it in Galatians, which is where we were last week. At the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, he gives kind of the synopsis of his, kind of his call to ministry, his early part of ministry. So Paul was a very highly educated Jewish man, like top of the class, like 4.5 GPA, like he was up there. He was the tippy top. He was taught by the best of the best of Jewish teachers, and he said, I fulfilled the law nearly to perfection. And then he met Jesus one day. His life was radically changed. He was saved and had a brand new mission. So we have this highly intelligent, very capable, radically saved person who you would just assume is going to go all out now and start his mission to save the world. But he has a time of preparation first. So he talks about like basically for three years, he just goes dark under the radar, not doing any ministry, not trying to just go out there, not knowing what he's like, flying blind. He just kind of goes silent. And then after a period of time that's been confirmed by the church leaders, he gets confirmation, yeah, we need you out there. We need you to fulfill your mission now. And then even after that, what's interesting is he goes out, he says, for 13 years, 14 years doing ministry. Even after that period of time, he comes back in to check with basically Peter and the leaders of the church to have them confirm that he's on the right track doing what God has really called him to do. So early on, before he starts his ministry, he has this time of preparation out in the desert, just hanging out, trying to make sure he's got his stuff together, making sure that he and God are on the same page. That he's, so he's going through this preparation process. That couldn't have been fun for Paul. I'm sure at some point in this three-year period, he felt like he was wasting valuable time. Like, I know what God's called me to do, and I'm ready to go, and so I'm just going to go. But he knew he had to be prepared. And then he still, throughout his ministry and life, continually was prepared by the Holy Spirit. Continually was reaffirmed what his calling was through times of preparation. And there are two aspects I'll just mention very quickly that I think Paul exhibited here. And I think even the Hebrew slaves in Egypt exhibited uh, that are, for proper preparation, we need humility and patience. I think especially that's what Paul shows us here. It, it would have taken great humility on his part to, take, to just slow, slam the brakes on, take a break, and get prepared. He had to say, there's got to be something more I need to know. There's got to be some, some more preparedness I need to have. So humility was important in proper preparation. And then patience. He stuck to the plan. He didn't try to get ahead of God and, do, and go off and get in trouble or get on, on, out on left field here and mess everything up. He knew it's too, what I'm doing is too important to rush. This plan that God has, I've got to have the proper preparation through humility and patience. So Paul did that, and we should do that as well. But the question is, what, if we go back to Israel, the story of Israel here, what are they being prepared for? What in the world are these 400 years getting them ready for? 
And really what it got them ready for was for a time in the wilderness and a time of fighting and battles. So after the people escape Egyptian bondage, there's 10 plagues that God sends, right? And then after that, the Pharaoh lets them go. And then as they're leaving, he changes his mind as Pharaoh's tend to do when they get a million free slave labor guys go free and so he goes back after them so now the people are right they're between the red sea and pharaoh's army so it's not a great situation here and so we here's what happens right before so kim mentioned the red sea she didn't know i was going to talk about it today but here it is right before we know that happens here's what moses says you got these people with their backs against the sea and pharaoh's army coming for them here's what happens exodus 14 verse 13 moses told the people don't be afraid Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. And then God supernaturally parts the Red Sea. So that's an amazing thing, right? God showed up, and then after that, they have 40 years of wandering in circles in the desert. That's their life for an entire generation until, you know, the older generation dies off as their judgment for doubting God's plan and God's promise. And then after that, again, I'm going through a ton here, right? Then after that, Moses then is going to die. He commissions Joshua to lead them into the promised land. And that sounds great. Ooh, promised land. Yes, let's do that. Really what this is, is a series of bloody battles to conquer this land that God gave them. It is not like a bed of roses here that they're about to encounter. So here's what happens then as Joshua begins to take over at the very beginning here. This is what both God and Moses say to Joshua. Deuteronomy 31 verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not panic before them. For the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. So there's 400 years of preparation and then 70 to 80 years of then the next phase of proving for the people. So this slavery prepared them for this proving ground that they would then go into. And the reason I mention both of these verses, even though they're separated by 50, 40, 50 years, is because there's two parts to this phase. There's two sides to this coin of God proving in this season. So in Exodus 14, what we see is God proving himself to the people right? They're in an impossible situation, and he says, just stand back and watch what I and only I can and will do. They didn't have any options. If they try to fight the Egyptian army, they're going to be dead on the beach. If they try to walk into the Red Sea, they're going to drown. So they have no, there's nothing that they can do, and God understands that. And so the first thing he does is he proves himself to them. You watch me do what is impossible, You watch me do what you could never dream of doing, and I will do it. And he did it. That's the first part of that. Then when we get to Joshua, it changes just a little bit. Because in Deuteronomy 31, he says, Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. God will personally go ahead of you. So at first, he's he's proving himself, and then he proves them through their wandering and then their, their conquest in the promised land. I'm going to go ahead of you. So that means they're going somewhere right? It means that they're part of this journey with him. The first time they get to sit back and watch. That was the one time for free, guys, okay? Now, after this, I'm going with you, like you're doing this with me. We're working together. He's proving, will you do what I'm asking you to do? Will you go where I'm leading you to go? That's what he's asking them to do in this time of proving. It's this sort of dance, if you will. At times, God will do what only he can, But there'll be some times where God wants us involved in what he's doing, 
We're not just sitting back and watching and observing our lives on a movie screen. We're having to live it, right? So what that means is sometimes we pray for God to do what cannot be done, and sometimes he's going to ask us to do what we can do, and it works together. That's what this proving part is. Jesus, we talked about Paul having a, the preparation time. Jesus had, a, had this phase in his life, proving time, where he literally had a battle in the wilderness. He had a one-on-one, mano-a-mano face-off against Satan himself. It's his temptation in the wilderness. This was a proving time for Jesus. In thinking about that this week, you know, I, I was kind of convicted that I don't, probably I don't consider the humanity of Jesus as often as I probably should. Like, I think about Jesus in terms of all the miracles that only he can do and all the things that only he could do and how he is eternal, how he is the king of the universe, but how on this earth for 33 years he was a human, fully divine, but fully human, right? He's a, the only 200% person who's ever lived. I know that's kind of weird to consider, but I'm not going to go into that at the moment. Just trust me on this, okay? He's fully God and fully man, but he's fully man, right? That's part of this. So, don't you think there's times where it may be the human part of Jesus thought, is this going to work? I know it may sound sacrilegious to say that. I'm telling you. In the garden, the night before he's crucified, he has, he has that moment openly, obviously. So I would assume even early on, right, before his ministry starts, he's thinking, oh, I don't know. This is, this is getting, this is a lot right now. Like, I'm feeling pressure. I don't, I, I know what's coming. I don't, I don't know. So this time in the wilderness for him is a proving ground. Because here's the thing, if he can withstand temptation from Satan himself, when it comes to Pharisees and religious leaders, he's going to be fine. Like, I've faced off with the devil in the desert. I can handle a self-righteous religious Pharisee just fine. Thank you very much. I think it, it proved even maybe to the humanity side of Jesus, I, okay, we're doing this. And then if he can handle all of the stuff that then in the wilderness, he had fasted 40 days before this temptation and withstood it anyway, and so then that prepares him for the grueling ministry that's about to come. This was a proving ground for Jesus. We all have to face these proving grounds, and we don't always like it, but we have to do that. So maybe you feel like right now you're in the wilderness. Maybe you're in this phase. I feel alone. I feel abandoned. I feel like I'm lost and wandering aimlessly. Or maybe you're trying to conquer that promised land. You're so close. You're knocking on the door to whatever this great plan was that God has for you, but you're fighting a lot of battles to get there. And maybe you're wearing out, and maybe you're getting really weak, and maybe you're tired of fighting. It'd just be so much easier just to quit, wouldn't it? But this is your proving ground. Maybe you're in this season of proving that God wants to say to you, don't quit. There's no white flag waving on this thing that we're doing. There's no stopping what God wants to do. It's in these times of maybe difficulty and stress and uncertainty where God wants to prove himself to you by doing what only he can do and revealing himself powerfully and then also proving you that you have what it takes if you're following what the plan was at the very beginning. That if you rely on his strength and his power and his spirit, you can withstand whatever battles you are facing. You can go through any wilderness that you might be in. So again, we're talking about God's not finished yet. This is so crucial to remember that, especially in this proving phase. Because we're so close, we're not there yet, and we fought for so long, and we've wandered for so long, and it's not there yet, and I'm about to give in. God's saying, no, I'm not finished just yet. And then we get to the payoff here. We get to the final step in the process, and that is this time of prospering. 
for God's people. So they enter the promised land, they conquer it, they settle it, and then they have sort of this hundred-so-year reign with three, the first three kings in their country's history. And there's always going to be good and bad, okay? So there's not a perfect phase here on this board, okay? There's no phase where there's no problems, no worries, no fears that doesn't exist in this planet. Maybe on Mars, when we get there one day, it'll, that'll be different, but probably not, okay? So we have this 120-year phase of three kings, and times are really good. Like, they, they build to their largest, vastest reach geographically ever in the history of Israel. Under King Solomon, David's son, they are the wealthiest, most powerful entity maybe the world has ever seen, even now. So it, it's good, right? It's good. The problem is, we'll look at here for just a minute, each king made a crucial mistake that kind of broke down this season of prosperity for the nation. So if we want to experience, I think, the full benefit of crossing the finish line and conquering whatever the thing is that we have and entering this time of prosperity in whatever area of life we are in, we have to avoid these three simple, quick mistakes. So we'll start with Saul. The, the mistake that Saul made that we want to avoid is when we're in a time of prospering, don't take the credit. That's what Saul did. Everything became about him. He wanted to do things his way no matter what God said. He wanted to do it on his timing, no matter what God said. He wanted to have his cake and eat it too, no matter what God said. His success became about him, and every failure that he encountered, he found someone to point the finger at. And that's really what caused his downfall, was he took the credit. So don't take the credit when you are prospering, in this season of prospering. The second uh, mistake to avoid is this mistake of Solomon, the third king, and that is don't take that for granted. If you find that God's answer to prayer don't take it for granted, right? So what, what Solomon did is in, in time of prosperity, and time of plenty, he just did his own thing. He forgot that God brought him there. He forgot that God could then, you know, like your parents maybe said, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. I, he forgot that God can do that too, you know? And that's what caused his downfall. He got distracted with too many things in prosperous times and it caused his downfall. And everything, his, the end of his life is a miserable mess and it breaks out into a civil war that destroys his empire because he took it for granted. And then the, the third mistake to not make even in times of prosperity is the mistake of David. So we talked about don't take the credit, don't take it for granted. And David's mistake is don't take. So David has this midlife crisis. He sees his, his best friend's neighbor's wife out there and decides, hey, he's out fighting for me in battle. I guess I'll just have a little side fling with her. And so he does that. She gets pregnant to cover it up. He has his best friend murdered, right? So we, that's a pretty famous story from David. It's because he took, in times of prosperity, again, he got kind of fat and happy and lazy and just took, 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 took. He wasn't generous with his prosperity, so when we're faced with this same thing, God, God does want to prosper you. I'm not trying to preach prosperity gospel, but he does. Like, he does want to answer your prayers. He does want to let you know that he's in control. He does want to reveal his power and glory to you, right? And so when he does that, the same thing. Don't take the credit. Man, God did this. God answered that prayer. God brought this increase. It's all about him. Don't take it for granted. Don't just say, oh, yeah, that's fine. Let's move on. No, like, celebrate the victories that God gives you. We don't have to flaunt at people's faces, but we want to celebrate the goodness of God, and then we want to be generous with this. So if may, maybe your thing was you learned lessons along the way in a difficult situation, find ways and people then to share that knowledge and wisdom. 
Be generous with the prosperity that God gives you. Maybe it is a financial blessing God gives you, right? That doesn't mean you have to then just put it all and I'm going to store it, you know, like a mind. Like, find those people that can use some of that prosperity and be a blessing to them, right? That's, that's the whole point of prospering. It's not, it's not about us. It's about God. It's not for us. It's for us to be generous with others. And so this is how we experience the full benefit of prospering. So it appears that we completed our journey, right? Here's what I want to close with. We're going to flip that and go back around. Because we've only gotten to the kings. There's a lot of the Bible left that I'm going to get through in about five minutes, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to start, we're going to pick it up from the prospering part that we left off with, and we're going to see the rest of Israel's history into the New Testament flips that the other way. We're going to see a mirror image here, okay? Let's, really quickly. So we left off with the kings in a time of prosperity. Right after that is then a time of proving. Because soon after, the kingdom splits, and then God takes the people into exile. We've talked about that earlier this year. That time of exile, and then even after exile, rebuilding their civilization was a time of proving. Okay, now that you've learned your lesson in Babylon, will you listen to me finally is what God's saying. Now that I've tried to warn you for hundreds of years and teach you and tell you, hey, listening to me is probably the best idea, now will you learn from your mistakes? It's a time of proving for them. And then after that is another time of preparing. So just like in Egypt, for, there was 400 years of silence and slavery. Between, I know that in your Bible, between the Old Testament and New Testament, it's like one page. That one page equals 400 years of chronological time. Okay, That's a lot of time in that one page. So after Malachi, God doesn't really do anything. He doesn't speak. There's no prophets. There's, not, there's things that go on. That's interesting history. But as far as inspired, I'm giving instruction here. There's nothing. It's silence. He's preparing them for what is about to come, which is a time of planting, which is the ministry of Jesus, which when you think about it, is not that impressive, right? What's impressive is that Jesus is still talked about 2,000 years later because Jesus had, what, a few dozen followers at his death? Like, after he rose from the dead, he met with maybe a couple hundred believers that still had faith in him. That's not that impressive, right? That's not, that's nothing. As far as leaders go, he didn't have a lot of followers. As far as like influence goes, it didn't seem like he had a lot, but it's a time of planting because what he did, right? Roots going deep, still around, right? Which is, I'm going to get ahead of myself, but that's, that's the last one. But then the planting phase of Jesus led to then the final planting phase, which is the original first century church, what Paul's letters that we're reading in this series are all about is the planning of what Jesus had planted. He started this movement. He started this thing. He's changed our perspective on everything. Now we got a lot to figure out. Now we got a game plan. Now we got to know what does this actually mean? What do we actually believe about Jesus? How does that inform how we live our lives now as followers of Jesus? So that first century, that even the first two centuries of the Christian church is a planning phase that then comes all the way back to prospering. And it may not seem always that the church is prospering, but guess what? 2,000 years later, it's still here. 2,000 years later, it's the longest-running religion in the history of the world. 2,000 years later, this, you know, this little nobody from the Middle East who had a couple hundred followers now has a billion-plus followers alive right now and billions more that have lived and died in the last 2,000 years. I would say that's prospering. This idea, this plan, this thing that started way back with Abraham has now come full circle twice over to still being God's plan, which reveals the truth that God is not finished. 
So maybe you find yourself in any number of these phases in your life. Maybe you find yourself in multiple phases in multiple areas of your life. I hope that we've understood today you can be encouraged. No matter what it looks like on the surface, God's not finished. No matter what you feel like has been left unaccomplished, God's not finished. No matter what you cannot do in whatever area of your life that you are in, whatever phase you're in, God is not finished. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't uproot too quickly. Don't abandon God's plan too quickly because he's not finished. Let's pray. God, we've gone on quite a journey today. We've gone a long way. But I pray that we have seen this theme all the way through Scripture. Just from this one verse, that he who began a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. So until that day comes, which it has not come yet, you are still not finished. Until you return or until we die, your plan in our lives is never completely finished. Even in those areas where we feel like we've had prosperity and we feel like it's over, there might be more that you want to do even in that area. That you might start the process over again to grow us even more and plan even more and do even more in and through us. Help us to know if the season is dark and lonely and scary, you are not finished. You go with us. You go before us. You will do what cannot be done as we do all that you ask us to do. Maybe the season that we're in is great. Help us to know that even then you're not finished. There's still work that you have for us to do. Maybe we've accomplished a lot. Maybe we know that your plan is still not finished. There's still more for you to do and us to do with your plan. Help us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are not finished with your work that you've started in each and every one of us. Thank you for that encouragement and that reminder today that you are not finished. And so I pray that today as we leave this place, we'll be filled with that reminder and encouragement as we walk out there into the real world now. The problems that we got, got to let go of for about an hour, they're back, but you're not finished. And so we walk out in victory and encouragement today, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.